That's what we're kind of going to talk about. Talk about Paul's message. Um, last week, we just looked at the brilliance of the man, the individual. He basically built our whole concept and structure of, of a Christian theology. And he impacted the world. Like, okay, I'm, I'm going to put up a visual. I'm going to show the map. Just so you can get an idea of, of his impact. So, Crystal, can we bring up the map? And I'm going to grab my laser pointer. Okay. So, okay, so here is, all right, so right here is Jerusalem, okay? And uh, right around here is Syria. So this is Damascus, modern-day Syria and Damascus. So this is where he was converted. He was converted from going from this little spot to that spot. That's where he met Jesus on the road. And uh, from from Damascus, from Syria, he gets, when he gets saved, when he surrenders his life to the Lord, he did something that it's very unusual. Um, he went on a bit of a spiritual journey. He, he went on, like a, like a, I guess you could say, a pilgrimage. Um, you would think that after his salvation, he would go back down to Jerusalem and then he would sit under the current apostles. So Peter, James, and John. But he didn't do that. He was not taught by them. He did something very interesting. So again, he gets this revelation that Jesus is Lord, right? He quits kill killing Christians. He's completely captivated. He's blinded and the scales fall off of his eyes and he's beginning to see and understand truth. And he pushes himself in. He runs after God at a very deep level. He headed south, further south. Maybe you don't know this story, but it's interesting and we don't have all the details. But, um, uh, down here is Sinai, and then down here in the basement is Arabia. And that's where he went. And the Bible tells us, or Paul tells us, that when he went to Arabia, he went to Mount Horeb. All right, Bible scholars, what's Mount Horeb? There's another name for it. Mount Sinai. So he went to the place where Moses got the law. And the interesting part is that he says that he went to Arabia. Now, there's, there's all kinds of debate where Mount Sinai is, where Mount Horeb is. We're not quite sure. Is it on that little strip right down there in the Sinai Peninsula, or is it all the way down in Arabia? There's all kinds of weird conspiracy theories about it. I usually tend towards the conspiracy theory side of things because I want to believe I like the fantastic and the extraordinary, so I actually think that Mount Horeb was in Arabia, and there's some proof to that, if you will. I don't need Go on YouTube, and you're going to waste your entire day <laughs> trying to figure out where the mountain of God is. Trust me. Been there, done that. And so um, Paul tells us, this is where it gets kind of mystical and we don't know all the details, he tells us that he was instructed by the Lord himself. Not by the apostles, but everything that he learned about the gospel of grace, he learned from the Lord himself. The only problem with that is, is that Jesus had died and resurrected and ascended into heaven. 
So how does this happen? I, we don't know. Uh, was it in the spirit? Did, did Jesus come down? I, we don't, he doesn't give us any details. Again, we have to just leave this up to the imagination. But from Mount Horeb, this is basically where he gets activated. He gets taught. He's discipled with the Lord in this season. Three years later, he goes into full-blown ministry. He heads back to Jerusalem. Gets together with the boys. They get along for the most part, but there is points in their relationship where things don't go well. Paul is a, um, he's a strong personality. He's a strong character. He's got this drive, and he's got, uh, he's got a mouth. I mean, I'm not quite sure how to say it in a nice way, but for the most part, everything that he does now, he might be misguided at times, but the Lord is with Paul, and he, he confronts Peter on an issue because Peter himself falls, in, falls back into a religious system. I mean, one of Jesus' greatest buddies falls back into uh, religions, falls back into, you know what, we need to obey the law. We need, to, we need to follow the rules. We need to celebrate this festival in order for us to be good Christians and good Jews. And Paul says, no. And he says, I confronted Peter to his face, and I ripped that religion right out of him, that religious spirit that says we need to control, we need to manipulate. It's all about checking off your list. It's all about spiritual karma and not about a personal relationship with Jesus. So he, he fractures that relationship. Here's the amazing thing about Peter is Peter, after that conflict, after that break, Peter, and we don't know exactly how it happened, but they, 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 they kissed and made up. They reconciled somehow. Here's the amazing thing that Peter does. Peter says that Paul's writings are holy scripture. Okay? So they didn't have what we have. They don't have this holy Bible bound in leather. Now, basically, they're, they're sending the equivalent of emails around. And Peter goes as far as to say, no, see, Paul's emails to the churches, to the believers, they are as, as if they are holy scripture. And you need to listen and you need to obey them. Isn't that crazy to, thought, to think about? Could you imagine getting an email and somebody saying, this is holy scripture and you need to obey it? You're like, what cult am I joining? <laughs> and Paul locks horns with Barnabas, his other companion. The, Barnabas was the, the son of encouragement. He's the one, I actually, I think Paul probably learned a probably more of the spirit of Jesus from Barnabas than anybody else, but regardless, two personalities clashed, and they couldn't get along, and they separated, and they went separate ways. And is there sin in that? I don't know. We don't know all the details. But what we do know is that Paul was dedicated to unity, and his, his whole purpose of ministry, one of, the, whole, one of the, the main messages that he has to say is the spirit of reconciliation. His, his mission is to reconcile man back to God and to reconcile mankind towards each other, and that's, that's what we're going to see today. Okay, so the scope of, again, what he does. Uh, from Jerusalem, he heads up into Turkey, Asia Minor, and as he's on his way up there, he's probably right around in this area. Uh, Antioch, Ephesus is in there, around in here somewhere. As he's heading up there, 
Paul wants to turn right. Paul wants to go that way. He wants to go into Iraq. He wants to go into Iran. He wants to visit Babylon. He wants to visit Persia. He might even want to go into India. He is so ambitious. Again, this is the guy that just came back from uh, Saudi Arabia. So he's already been on two continents. He wants to go east. Why does he want to go east? Because that was the natural draw in the collective consciousness. Like, we like to go west, right? You've heard this. We're all Americans. Go west, young man. There's gold in them there, hills. Manifest destiny. The whole idea of manifest destiny. We almost even feel as if we are in the promised land because we are in uh, sunny, golden California. At least I do. I've lived in the east. That place is terrible. I'm going to, this list, keep me in Southern California, please. Thank you. Oh, I just got some frowns. Sorry. But, but so our, I don't know, in our collective consciousness, we want to go west. We want to go to Hollywood. We want to go to the glitz and the glamour of it all. We want to go to the beaches and surf. And in the ancient world, the, the same is true, but they wanted to go the other direction. They wanted to go east because civilization started in Mesopotamia. Civilization and trade and commerce, it was all to the east. And this, whatever was going on in Europe at the time, they were all just a bunch of crazy barbarians. And Paul, again, his, his, the, the natural, what felt right, what was logical, what made sense, right? You see where I'm going with this? Sometimes what makes sense, what makes logical sense, what the practical thing to do, you would think is to go right. But what the Lord is sometimes telling us to do is, no, the, what I'm calling you to, what I'm leading you to do is to go left. And Paul gets a vision. The Holy Spirit stops him from going east. He says, no, I want you to go west. And he gets a dream. He gets a vision of a man from Macedonia that says, come to us and minister to us. And this man from Macedonia, why, why Macedonia? I, why not Athens? Why not, you know, Sparta or something like that? Because, and again, this is me reading into it. I can't help myself. But Mas, Macedonia is where the great Alexander came from. And it could even be that he had a vision of this conqueror. And I believe what the Holy Spirit was telling Peter or Paul was that you're going to head to the west, and what you're going to do, what you're going to accomplish, is going to literally change the world like Alexander the Great changed the world. And Alexander the Great did change the world, by the way, probably not in the best ways, but I believe it's the same type of impact. And so he does, he's faithful, he heads west, he has, you know, three missionary journeys, and of course, it's all in this area. We consider it Turkey, but they also considered it Greece, and then here in Greece, and then of course, he ends up in Rome. Uh, tradition says he gets his head chopped off there, but that's not in the Bible. And then... Uh, I believe that he even ended up in Spain. Now, I also believe that the ancient Egyptians made it to the Americas. So, again, I like these, these conspiracy theories. So it probably, probably didn't. Th th scholars don't think that he made it to Spain. But I want to believe he made it to Spain. So will you just believe with me together that he made it all the way to Spain? Okay? So the whole point is, is that he got all of Mediterranean and Arabia. And this is, okay, do you... Like, it would take a long time just to even fly from point A to point B in these areas. Where the average person in the ancient world didn't travel 10 miles beyond where they grew up. Isn't that nuts? 
That is the drive of this individual. My laser pointer will fall down and make a big noise. I'll put it over here. How can we, how can we relate to somebody like this? An ancient person that traveled that much territory and had that much impact. The whole, I mean, the word of God, the, our, our concept of Christian theology basically comes from Paul. Wow. How can I relate? So, what I want to do right now is I want to take Paul out of his ivory tower. Because most of us aren't geniuses. Just Pastor Larry. But most of us are not Jesus. <laughs> not Jesus. Uh, we're not, we're not, we just, we, we're like, man, I, I can't really be there because I don't have that type of mental grasp and I don't necessarily have that kind of drive. And what I'm going to do, we're going to take him out of his ivory tower and I'm going to show you not only was he just an amazing man, but he was just an average person like everybody else. He was, you know, he went to the equivalent of Harvard and Yale, but he was not a rich kid. He got the scholarship. He was one of those kids that got the scholarship, you know, and he's one of those poor kids, so he had to hang out with the rich kids. You know, when he wasn't in class, he had to work in the kitchen to help pay his tuition, that kind of thing. So he was just an average guy. And uh, we're going to look at the end of Romans. And last week we looked at Galatians, and Galatians is considered the Declaration of Independence from Religion. It is Paul's just powerful statement that, um, you know, we're not going to do this religious thing anymore. And it is by grace through faith that we have been saved. And so he just, he puts all the religious spirits on notice and he says, no, we're going to go into a, a personal relationship with God. And so if Galatians is the Declaration of Independence, uh, Romans is by far the Bill of Rights. It is deep, it's complicated. Um, like, we could easily spend two years just trying to understand and study Romans, but I just won't do that to you. Uh, we did look at Romans not too long ago, and it probably bored you to death. But the, pro- the, the, the thing with Romans is, like, once you get it, like, once you, once you understand, like, oh, my gosh, grace? Once you kind of understand his legal mind and the way that he thinks and the way that he communicates and his use of rhetoric, it's like, wow. And, uh, like, Bible scholars and teachers and pastors and nerds, we just fall in love with Romans. And then we want to make everybody else want to fall in love with Romans. That's the problem. So um, here is the very end of Romans. And the reason why I want to read it is because it is one weird bookend to the theology of our Christian faith. It doesn't really quite fit. But the reason why I want to read it is because you're going to see the heart and the individual, and you're going to see the real man, the, 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 the heartbeat of what he was doing. And I think the Hunger Games are calling. Okay. Um, chapter 16, verse 1. Now this... Like, this is the boring stuff, folks. When I read the Bible, this is what I either skim or don't read altogether. All right? So we're going to read the boring stuff. What do you think? All right. The genealogies. So when the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and making yourself a better person, uh, we're going to actually see it here in this boring stuff. Let's see how it works out. All right. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 1. 
I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at uh, Seneca, whatever. All right, does anybody else have a different translation? Probably King James, like the old school King James. What is, what is uh, Phoebe a, a, a servant? Do you have a different word for servant by chance? A deacon. She is a deaconess. She's a leader. She's actually a, a church leader. Uh, what's, so what's the big deal? The big deal is that he's closing his magnum, magnum opus by recognizing a woman by name. And she's not even a Jew. She's a Greek because Phoebe is, I mean, she's got, like, like if, if Paul really had a religious spirit, he would make her change her name because she's named after the Greek goddess of light. So Phoebe is, a, is means light, goddess of light. So he doesn't even make her change her pagan name. No, he keeps her the same, and he calls her a deaconess. So she is here, she's serving the church. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in the way worthy of the saints and to give her any help that she may need, that she may need for you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. So Paul gets a bad rap in our current secular culture. He gets a bad rap in our religious culture, too. They, they say that Paul is a misogynist, and he's sexist, and he's a horrible person uh, because of the, some of the stuff that's written in Timothy, okay? And we'll talk about it later. But here is the thing that you just really need to get your, your head around. Nobody in the ancient world would ever end their letter by recognizing and, and, and encouraging a woman's ministry. Like, that just didn't happen. Like, this is the ancient world. This is the good old boys club. This is a male-dominated society, and Paul's closing his letter by recognizing this deaconess, this church leader, by name, and saying that she's even helped me. The way that it actually comes across is that she's even instructed me. What? I know. Verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. They risk their very lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Now, the, the Priscilla and Aquila are named about six times in the New Testament. And does anybody know what they did for a living? Yeah, they're tent makers. Very good. You got a golden star in Sunday school. They're tent makers. They actually had a real physical job that they did. And what we know from the other sources about Priscilla and Aquila, um, they taught Paul. So again, Paul has this major revelation. He gets knocked off his horse. If there was a horse there, Caravaggio says that there was a horse there. Again, I want to believe, so there's a horse. So Paul gets knocked off his horse. He gets blinded by the glory of God. He goes into a time of discipleship in Arabia on Mount Horeb where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. He is, according to him, he is taught by the Lord himself and not by the apostles. He is... Fired up. He, he's activated into his ministry. He's now doing the stuff, and he's preaching all over the place. He's making a powerful impact. And Priscilla and Aquila say, son, come over here and have dinner with us. Come over and come and hang out in our house for a little bit. And they make him a nice little meal, and they say, 
he gets two strokes and a poke. You're really passionate. You're doing a really great job over here. And we're really amazed at your skill and rhetoric. But you're missing the point because what you're preaching right now is not the gospel of grace. Even though you've had this major revelation, you're still missing it. And guess what Paul does? He submits himself to Priscilla and Aquila, the married team, the ministry team. Do you notice any, way, any interesting uh, dynamic on how it gets mentioned? Is it Aquila and Priscilla? No, it's Priscilla and Aquila. He starts with the woman first. We don't know exactly why. Uh, again, it's all speculation, but we think that maybe that maybe we think that Priscilla might have been the teacher. She might have been the one that, that actually was, had, had the ability to communicate the message, and she had a firmer grasp of the scriptures. And uh, Aquila most likely was behind the scenes, making all the meetings happen and the, on the administrative side, but they were a ministry team. They instructed Paul on the better way of grace, right? The guy that had the revelation. And he receives it humbly because Paul has a teachable spirit. He allows two tent makers that don't have the Ivy League education, that didn't go to seminary. The only thing that they've got is that they love Jesus and they have the ability to share God's word. And Paul submits himself under that because for some reason, Paul knows that he's being led by the Spirit, and he's a teachable person, and he submits to them, and they together change the world. And they go on these, they go on these little trips together. And they, uh, this is the amazing part. They are, they, they, have you heard of tent-making ministries? You know what that means? That means you're raising your own money to do ministry. But I actually think that it's more than that. Because... You are all called to be like Paul, and you're all called to be like Priscilla and Aquila. Why not? You see, when Paul writes his letters, some of them come across, um, you know, again, he's got specific audiences that he's writing to. He'll be writing to the Jews. He'll be writing to the Greeks. He changes up his language. He changes up his approach. He's able to, to go into each, each little culture and meet them where they're at. Um, he even... And then when he writes, if he's coming out of his own hand, he'll say, I, Paul, wrote this out of my own hand, right? So I wrote this letter down personally, just so you know. But a majority of Paul's letters are dictated, meaning that he didn't write it in his own hand, that he was talking, or he was, he was just speaking it out, he was dictating it, and some scribe is writing it down, and he's going to send the email off in a few minutes. And this is, again, this is my imagination, but I, I believe that some of the best work Paul did, he was, it was coming out of his head and out of his mouth while his hands were working. While he, re, 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 think about it. When do you have your most brilliant ideas? It's when you're active and it's when you're doing something, when your mind is engaged. And so I think all of the brilliance of Paul was probably coming out around the work table as Priscilla and Aquila, as they were having a dialogue. So my encouragement to you today is like you need to take this conversation out of this room and into your workplace. You need to take this conversation out of your, your sphere of spiritual church and take it into your, the educational system. Have a conversation. Find a believer and start talking about this stuff and see what God does. See, we, we know, I say we, I don't know who we are, 
but us pastor folks and the, the prophetic community around us, um, and I've heard it from different camps, not just our camp. I've heard it from the Baptist camp and this camp and that camp. Um, it seems as if it is in the spiritual air in our country, in our culture, that the next great revival, the next great awakening, if you will, it will not happen in our little, uh, in our little temples that we, that we have erected. The great next revival is going to take place inside the marketplace. And so you guys are the Priscilla's and the Aquilas. Isn't that cool? So... Again, we see Phoebe, this Greek gal that's kind of out of place. She is the goddess of light, who Paul says is an amazing deaconess. Priscilla and Aquila, they are in the marketplace. Let me tell this story. When I was in the marketplace, uh, for those of you who don't know, my previous life, years ago, I was at this antique dealer. And antique dealers are like the worst people on the planet. Like, we're unethical, we lie, and we cheat, and we're the scum of the earth, pretty much. And so, um, right? It's just, it's just, just be careful. Be wary of antique dealers and yard sale people, and especially the, the, especially the folks at the flea markets. Like, the flea market is the worst of the worst. So I was in this flea market in, uh, in, in Brussels, and uh, I, bought the, I bought a painting, gave, made the transaction, shook hands, exchanged the cash, and as soon as the guy got the money, he, he did this, kissed it, did something else, put it in his pocket. I'm like, that was kind of weird. And then there was something else I wanted, so I bought something else. And as soon as he got the cash, he did this, kissed it, and like, wow, this is kind of weird. He stuck it in his pocket. Um, and then I bought something else that I didn't even want because I wanted to watch him do it again. Because <laughs> I was fascinated by it. And see, there was a, there was, here's, here's the, here's, this might bring a little bit of conviction. God was in his business. On every transaction, God was in his business. He gave thanks for every dollar that he got in income at that moment. Really brought a conviction into me. The problem was that he didn't, he doesn't serve our God. This is a Muslim. And I was so, again, it was just, it's so vivid in my memory. So I just remember that one so much. And I, and I went home with that realization. It's my like, gosh, I don't do this. You know, I'm in the marketplace. I'm a Christian. But I didn't thank God or give him the credit or say a little prayer or do a little dance when I just made that big sale, when I just fleeced that rich person. And, and I did, I mean, it was like, I had this one sale. I was like, oh my gosh, the margin on this. It was either I ripped this guy off or God really blessed me. So I'm just going to say God really blessed me because it was like the margin was huge. But the conviction came is because, my God, I, I didn't. Who got the glory for the sale? I did, right? You see? That is, that's the source of all of our problems, folks, because all blessing, all increase comes from the Lord. That was Cain's major problem. Cain was, he was the, this is the first, one of the, one of the second sin, right? The, Cain had the pride. He, he grew his own crops, where I believe that Abel was a hunter-gatherer. He grew his own crops, where God provided for Abel. Cain grew his own stuff. This is my stuff, and I'm going to give you some of it, Lord, right? That's why it was rejected. That's why, that's why Abel's offering was rejected, because in his mind, it was his. He grew it. It was, it was in his own power and his own will, 
and he was going to bless God with his stuff. That's the problem. And so, if you're in the marketplace, look, I I just want to encourage you. You're going to do better if God's in your business. You're just going to do a lot better. I I want to encourage you. Allow him to bless you. You'll do okay on your own because you guys are all gifted and smart and tenacious and you want to make money. You're going to do great on your own. You're going to do better with God. Okay. Uh, Greet, this is verse 5, greet my dear friend uh, Epinitus, who was the first convert in Asia. Okay, so Paul's like, this is the first guy that I led to the Lord. This is kind of important to him. So names are important. These people are important to him. This is what I'm trying to get across to everybody. Like, people matter to Paul. Um, I only have one kid, and so our kid is really special to us because she's our first and our only. And I don't know, maybe you've got more than one kid, and all kids are really important and special. But isn't there something special about your first? Because it's like, you know, I don't know. Am I wrong? Like, okay, okay, we'll leave it alone. But you know what I'm saying, right? Like, it's like your first time. And so the first convert gets mentioned probably just because he's Paul's first convert. And then he says, greet Mary, okay, listen, who worked very hard for you. Another woman mentioned. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are standing among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Okay, why is that important? Well, these are his relatives, maybe his cousins. We don't know who they are. And he acknowledges them, and he, he, he recognizes their ministry as apostles. And he even says that they were serving the Lord before I was. So this is, there is an honoring going on. There's a respect that Paul is doing that we don't necessarily do ourselves. And greet Ampelitis, uh, Ampelitis, whom I love in the Lord. Okay, this one can easily skip over, but this one's probably one of the most important names in the story that we're doing. Greet Apollitus, whom I love in the Lord. Who is this guy? What we know from the name... And what, what we know from history, extra-biblical history, this guy existed, and he was a slave. You know, slaves only have one name. This is the only name he gets. And we've looked this guy up. He's a slave. So Paul's audience right now, the church in Rome, whom he's communicating to, We've got, a, we've got a marketplace person, we've got a woman leader, we've got another woman leader, and then we've got a slave. Wow, that's kind of cool. And here's the fascinating thing about a Christian community that is doing this stuff right. The, the, I believe with all my heart that a true community of Christ is diverse. We're diverse in age, you're diverse economically. Because so right now we've got some business people, and we've got, some, we've got a slave, we've got some poor people. And they're all going to the same church. And we've got some ethnic diversity here. We've got, we got Greeks and we've got Jews hanging out together. Not even making them change their name. If Paul was really religious, he would have made Phoebe change her name. You can't be named after a Greek goddess. That's, that's blasphemy. Here's the amazing thing. All right, Crystal, let's go ahead and show the slave's tomb. This is an actual catacomb. They found his name. This is in Rome. And this is where they buried the guy. And he gets buried right next to a princess, a slave. This is what the community of Christ does. It takes people from other different demographics and status, and it puts them on the same level. 
Paul even says it. There's no such thing as male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free person. We are all the same in Christ. And this community actually lives it out, and they put the slave right next to the princess. Isn't that cool? That's the, ta- that's the type of power that this community has. And this actually changed the world, and we're going to see more of that in a second. Okay, so next we see the slave. Um, greet Urbanus, uh, or like Urban. So basically greet the city, the city slicker our fellow worker in Christ and dear friend, uh, Stachus, he, he opened up a, a, a steak franchise. <laughs> Greet Apollos, tested and approved in Christ. Okay, here, this one's fun. Greet those who belong to the house of Aristopolis. And this is a rich dude. Here's the funny thing. Um, it doesn't say greet Aristopolis because Aristopolis hasn't stepped over that line of faith yet, but his entire household has. His kids, his servants, everybody came to faith except for this guy. If this guy would have been, if he would have come to faith, uh, he would have said greet Aristopolis. No, he says no, greet his household because this, this guy hasn't made it yet. The rich guy. There's more details about him, but for the sake of time, I'm going to skip it. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are also in the land. Okay, this is the one I want to talk about. Same situation. Narcissus isn't going to heaven either. But his household is. They're saved. And this is another extra biblical account that we have of a real historical person that lines up with the Bible. You know, you ever hear this stuff, that, oh, the Bible was written 300 years after this stuff all happened, and it's, none, it's all made up. You ever heard that? Have you heard that from your neighbor or from Uncle Bob? The whole thing's made up. Well, here we got actual proof of people that are in the Bible that are actually in extra historical uh, uh, documents. So in the Chronicles in Rome, Narcissist is there. We found this guy. Uh, he is the secretary to the emperor Claudius. He actually has control over his calendar. And so if you want to meet the big guy, you have to go through Narcissus to get there. So guess how much money Narcissus has? A lot. Because you've got to grease this guy's palm if you want to get inside. And so uh, he's not saved, but his whole household is. Now, of course, in you know, typical Roman tradition, they kill Claudius. He gets murdered. And the famous Nero, have you heard of Nero? Okay, you've heard of this guy. Nero is, succeeds him next, and Nero, um, so this might be a good, I don't know, if, maybe this wouldn't have happened if Narcissus would have accepted Jesus. But Nero makes Narcissus commit suicide and then steals his entire estate. Takes all of his money, takes all of his land, and takes, guess what else? All of his servants and slaves. So here's the great historical irony that changed the world. While Nero was burning Christians and feeding them to the lions, behind the scenes there were Christians in the household that were actually washing his toilets and feeding him his meals and serving him. This is how it, get, this is how it seeps into the whole culture, folks. It came in through the back door. What the enemy wanted for evil, the, 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 God turned it around for good. Isn't that cool? Okay. So we see Paul writing specific letters to the rich, to the poor, and different ethnic groups, and to women. 
Greet Typhina and Typhosa, those women, those women who worked hard in the Lord. Their names translate into greet delicate and greet dainty. Isn't that sweet? So they were probably, you know, twin sisters that never married. And he says, greet them in the name of the Lord. Here's the, you know, they worked hard together. So delicate and dainty have worked hard together. And the language that's used is they've worked very hard together. We actually found some ancient proof of these two here. Let's see if we can bring them up. There they are. There's delicate and dainty. All right, so I'm sorry. I had to lighten the mood a little bit. So delicate and dainty, they worked hard for the Lord. We can bring that down, please. Sorry. Greet my dear friend Persis and other women who have worked very hard for the Lord. Okay, are you noticing a specific theme here? Who's working hard for the Lord? Women. There's nothing new under the sun here, is there? Like he, he names off the guys too, but they never get that title. They never get that recognition in their ministry for working hard. Isn't that funny? So do you still think that Paul's a misogynist? No, he's not. All right, and then he goes into this. This gets into the heart of, of the man, the, the individual that we can become like. We might not be able to travel all over the world and do what Paul did, but we can definitely do this. Verse 16 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. What? You know anybody that takes the Bible literally? Literalists? Usually those guys are grumpy and mean, and they like to beat people up with the Bible. So we need to take the Bible literally, and that's the problem with the church today. They don't take the Bible literally. Like, okay, let's do it. Pucker up, right? And this is... Really? Okay, so this is a cultural thing. Like, unless you want to turn to your neighbor and kiss them. On the lips. You go to Russia or Chechnya with Pastor Larry, and you're going to do ministry there, you better bring your chapstick, guys. Because some big, burly Russian guy is going to kiss you on the lips. It's true. And it's not a gay thing. It's, this, it's how they greet each other in the Lord. We get all of our cultural stuff all mixed up and all twisted and, and distorted. Okay, so yes, I'm not going to make you guys kiss each other, but you know what's important here? You want to see God's heart for you? Is there, that what Paul is really trying to communicate through all of this, through, through naming people by name, some 20 people by name at the end of his magnum opus, his theological wonder work, right? You know what, he, what, what does Paul care about? He cares about people, and he cares about affection. This is why I love our church so much. And I, I, I say we can always do better. You know, what's more important than, you know, knowing the word inside and out and making sure that you're following all the right Christian rules and speaking the right Christian language? Do you want to know what really is important? Is if we are loving each other well. Like the theology is going to follow up later. We'll figure this stuff out later. But what's really matter is like, is this, this affection? When I was in Romania after that whole mess in the, in the 90s, uh, we, were, we went into work in orphanages, and I was just a teenager at the time, so kind of idealistic and, you know, had my ideas about faith and how to do church the right way. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, these orphans have never had physical contact. They have never been touched by a human, literally. This is the kids that we were working with. They, they locked these, these babies up in cages. I mean, it's like, what in the world is wrong with humanity? And 
what was like psychologically damaging was that there was just no physical touch. So I get it. You might not be a touchy-feely person. Like you might not like the hug. But I want to encourage you. Try the side hug. The side hug will get you halfway there. You know, guys, I know we don't like to express our feelings, and I totally get it. I'm not that way, but the Bible tells us that we need to be affectionate towards one another and brotherly love. So do the, the pat on the back, the three pat, pat on the back, the I'm not gay pat, right? <laughs> and it is so vital, and it is so crucial to the way that we do church. And I really do think that the enemy of God wants to take away our affection for each other. This is, what, this, is, this is how Paul is ending his book. You be affectionate towards one another. You build each other up. You honor and you recognize and you notice each other's ministries. This is Paul. And guess what? What is he saying to us? It ain't about me. It's not about my awesomeness. It's about your awesomeness and what God is doing inside of you. This is the mark of a true apostle. And he goes on to say, this is his warning. This is probably the warning for us and every church in this area. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that you are contrary to the teachings which you have learned. Keep away from them. You got Keep away from negative people. Keep away. Like, if you can't help a grumpy person, stay away from them. Like that negative seed, that negative talk, the, 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 the cynical spirit, that critical cynical spirit is death. And it gets into your soul, and it makes you bitter. So just let go of that stuff. Stay away from it. For such people are not serving the Lord, but their own appetites. Did you catch that? Be wary of people on platforms that serve their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, but I am full of joy over you. Again, we see this affection for God's people. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan over, under your feet. Okay? Uh, this, is, this is our call for our church today. We're amazing. We're affectionate. Um, but Paul knew people by name. How many people do you know by name in this church? Like, Paul didn't have Facebook. How could he remember 20 people's names? I mean, how could he remember all these people? How did he do this? It's because he cared. He interceded, and he prayed for them. So I'll push this a little bit. Like, we're doing communion next week on Sunday night. I've got to wrap this up. And I love communion because it, we commune with Jesus. But the way that these guys did it, is they did it around the dinner table, and they hung out, and they did fellowship together. How do we do it? We get our little plastic cup, we get our cracker, we pop it, we chug it, we do our spiritual thing, we get a warm fuzzy from Jesus, and then we peace out. And we don't love anybody in the building, right? That's not true communion. That's religion. So let's do communion on Sunday night, and I want to encourage you. Afterward, Friday night, I want to encourage you. One another somebody. Get to know somebody that you don't know. Go out to dinner afterwards. Don't make it a religious experience. Let me get the band come up. 
I'm going to wrap it up here. Let's don't make it a religious experience. It's a communal experience. All right. I'm not quite sure where to put the bow on this, but again, I would say the practical uh, take home is are you more concerned about your own spiritual growth than you are over people? There's a danger to that. Do you find your heart getting harder towards individuals and towards people? Or do you... Or do you want to become more like Paul, like the rock star of the Mediterranean, the world traveler, yet he recognizes slaves and he recognizes business people and he recognizes rich people and they all do church together? Back in the day when the Holy Spirit was really moving in the vineyard movement, I was a kid and um, we were in Anaheim. Crazy stuff was going on. It was absolutely amazing. And how do you know when God's moving? You feel the peace of God in the room. That's it, right there. So you can see all kinds of amazing stuff. You can see God do crazy stuff. You can see, I don't know, you can see I don't know, signs and wonders. But if there's no peace in there, you've got to question it. You just do. It's that sweet presence of God. Let me get the, usher, the offering to come up to the front too. And I remember sitting, you know, there were some families there, and there were some, you know, underprivileged people there. And then my dad nudges me, and he says, you see that guy over there in the suit? I said, yeah. He says, that's John DeLorean. See what I'm saying? See what church is supposed to be? It's supposed to hit everybody. It's not for one specific person. Our church does not have a target audience. Everybody is our target audience. I want to encourage you to step into your ministry and to encourage others to do their ministry too. Let's pray. God, right now, we just thank you so much. We thank you for a good heavenly father that has good things planned for us. And God, right now, we just invite you into our lives. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, come. And I pray that you'll walk out of the building with us, that we take you into the marketplace, that we take you into our schools, our universities, and our homes. We take you with us, Lord. That we, that we walk like Paul did, that we walk in the Spirit. And they will realize that this thing isn't about us and what we can do. No, this is about you working through us, changing a world, transforming a culture, transforming a family. So God, right now, I just pray that you just do a deep work in us right now and heal us up from, from dissension and bitterness and rage and unforgiveness, everything that hinders us from saying, God, come into my heart and make me a new creation. God, may we be an affectionate church affectionate and appropriate to our culture and just free us from a spirit of religion. Pray this in your name, Lord Jesus.